Hello and welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number seven, cost accounting, compliance, and proof of price adjustments as it relates to the COVID virus. My name is Todd Hatherly. I'm the director of programming for federal publication seminars. And we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for over 60 years. And every year, federal publication seminars trains thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on the legal, regulatory, compliance, and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are a small sampling of important content you, as a contracting professional, can expect from attending an FPS program. Whether it's either in person, online, live, or on demand, you cannot find another source with the breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Joining me today to discuss is James Newland, who is a partner with the law firm Cyferth and Shaw in DC. Also joining will be Greg Bingham, who's a partner with HKA. I will now turn the program over to Jim, and Jim, you can do the introductions for me, if you would. Thank you, Todd. Today, we're going to talk about cost accounting compliance and some elements involved in proving price adjustments. And I'm very glad to be talking today with Greg Bingham, who is an expert in this field. Greg, welcome to the podcast. And I think it's truly important because a lot of times what I'll tell clients is we can have the best case on entitlement. We can have a great changes case. We can have a great delay case. We can have a great differing site conditions clause case. And they typically focus on that element. But if the damages and the proof of cost and the compliance issues aren't taken care of, you know, we might have some headaches down the road or certainly some some work to do. So I'd like to get into that issue with you today. Many of many general contractors or many government contractors are familiar with FAR Part 52 because that's where we find the specific contractual causes. But I want to talk to you first really about FAR Part 31. So can you set the table a little bit for us on FAR Part 31 and some of the concepts of reasonableness, allocability, and allowability? Certainly. Yeah, Jim. And I'm very pleased to be here. I'm, I love this topic, and it's, it's great to visit with you on this topic. So, uh, yeah, so FAR 31 has got the cost principles. And uh, early in FAR 31 is this passage on determining allowability. And, and just in short, for a cost to be, to be reimbursed by the federal government, it must be allowable. And so if you've got a lump sum contract or a fixed price contract where you just perform the work and you bill for performance, you know, that you're not focused on cost so much. But in a, a change, uh, a modification or a claim or a change or a request for equitable adjustment, you are focused on cost. You have to be, you have to be based on cost. And cost is not, you, you might say, well, we have audited financial statements. We have a cost information. Well, it's, you might think of it as FAR 31 cost. It's got to be measured in accordance with FAR 31. And so FAR 31 says that for a cost to be reimbursed by the government, it must be allowable. And for it to be allowable, it's got to meet these five criteria. And the five criteria are it's got to be reasonable in amount. It's got to be allocable, properly allocated to the contract. It's got to be consistent with the standards of the CAF board, the cost accounting standard board, or GAAP, depending generally accepted accounting principles, whichever is relevant in the case. It's got to be consistent with terms of the contract, and it's got to be within the limitations of FAR 31.2. And the limitations of FAR 31.2 have all these unallowable costs, like bad debts or alcohol or lobbying costs that just the federal government has said is a 
point of view of public policy, they're not going to reimburse the company for lobbying the government, or they're not going to reimburse the company for, for bad debts or alcohol or interest or a number of these other categories. So does that kind of set the stage for what allowability means and what the five criteria are? Yeah, it does. I, I want to get a couple more examples on the table because I think it's critical. In my practice, I represent construction contractors who many times will do both private construction contracts and public or federal government construction projects, but they have the same accounting system. And so you right. get into all kinds of issues there. So when you right. talk about unallowable costs, I really want to talk about entertainment costs and employee morale because on the private side, sometimes we'll see things that I'll loosely call team building costs, for lack of a better word, yeah. that are in the job cost report. And that sounds like a definite problem on the government contract side. Yes, it almost always is. And uh, and let me just say, with you could have an, an entity, say a business unit, or it can be a separate legal entity, or it can, might just be a business unit. But if it has some government contracts, so it's got federal funding, it's got these allowable cost rules, and then a bunch of non-government funded contracts, it's really from a practical matter, it's hard to account for some of the contracts in accordance with FAR 31 and screen out these unallowable costs. And then the rest of the contracts treat differently. For practical reasons, it's almost impossible to do that within one business unit. You have to account for virtually all of your contracts within a business unit the same way. And, and part of that gets to the, the pooling and allocation of indirect costs. You know, when you're pooling your DNA and allocate for the DNA for this business unit, and then you're allocating it to all the contracts in the business unit. You can't allocate it to some contracts one way and other contracts another way. You have to be kind of consistent throughout that business unit. So anyway, it, it, just as a practical tip, you kind of have to screen out those types of employee morale, entertainment type costs for all your contracts or none of your contracts in a particular business unit. What about employee training? Do you find that many of your clients implement training programs for their employees so that they're properly trained in identifying specifically unallowable costs? Yes. And the uh, it's more of how you set up your accounting system. And then once the accounting system is set up, it just as people enter costs into the accounting system, the categories are there, you know, and they're they're used to they're used to classifying when they're entering a cost, is this an allowable part of professional Is this allowable legal fees or is this unallowable legal fees? And then they'll put it in. Or is this, is this for alcohol or is this for other business dinner, not including alcohol? Is this uh, bad debts, easy uh, lobbying cost? If you're playing, paying a professional service, say you're paying a law firm that also does lobbying, are you paying for lobbying or are you paying for legal fees of not lobbying? So it's more in the how the accounting system is set up initially. Yeah, it, suffice it to say it's complicated, and I appreciate that overview. I think that was very helpful. Let me ask Good. you about let me ask you a little bit about allocability and kind of direct versus indirect costs. Can you set Can you give us kind of an overview of those elements and how they're treated uh, under the FAR? Yes, and that's a, a confusing point. So, lot, lot, uh, say a commercial entity that doesn't that doesn't do government contract work or does it may not care about really the distinction between direct and indirect. But in the government contract context, you have to account for them differently. And and so a, a direct cost is uh, on a construction site, pretty much everybody at the site. Certainly, the people with with the tools in their hands, 
they're working directly on the project, those are direct costs. And the indirect costs are the people at home office. So the accounting group, HR, the president, the executive suite, the C-suite, all those people back at the home office, those are indirect costs. So the people that are direct, they support one contract directly. The people that are indirect have an indirect relationship to all of the contracts. For a cost to be allowed to be allocated to a contract, it's got to have a causal or beneficial relationship with that contract. So that's where you find yourself, well, a certain portion of the accounting group gets allocated to each contract or a certain portion of the human resources or IT or the lease on the headquarters building. Those get you know, accumulated into a pool and allocated out to all contracts. So that's and how direct costs are handled and then indirect. And I think consistency is worth stressing there, particularly with uh, indirect costs. Certainly. That's the biggest bugaboo, if you will, uh, where contractors get into trouble is related to consistency, where they'll figure out a way, sometimes not even realizing that it's, they're breaking any rules, but to sort of benefit one contract over other contracts by allocating less cost or allocating costs differently. And so a lot of the, the rules in FAR Part 31 and in the cost accounting standards relate to that consistency issue, making sure that you're treating all the different cost objectives, all the different contracts consistently. When I talk to a contractor and they tell me they have audited financial statements, I think that's the, the start of the analysis. So I think it's important to figure out what those, how those audited financial st statements were prepared, certainly from an audit yeah. perspective. Would you agree? Yes. And one thing about audited financial statements versus the cost accounting like FAR 31 and the cost accounting standards is audited financial statements will tell you about the entity. So they'll tell you about the profit and loss of that business unit. So all the revenues of that business unit, all of the costs of that business unit, the revenues minus cost to get profits for that business unit. But if you ask the question about what's the cost incurred on a particular contract, the, you can't dig that out of the financial statement. That question, what's the cost incurred on a particular contract, that's going to be answered by cost accounting, not financial accounting. And so it's going to be cost accounting, and it's going to be as measured by the FAR 31 or measured by the cost accounting standards. So this might be a good time to shift from FAR 31 into the cost accounting standards. Can you give us an overview of what we mean when we talk about CAS and distinguish between full and modified consistency standards? So yeah, the, a brief tangent related to Admiral Rickover. So when you put yourself back in the 1960s and 70s, and the, uh, Admiral has got a big, a lot of cost reimbursement shipbuilding contracts, and he's awarding the contracts. And then after a few, a few years of performance, he's trying to compare the bid to the costs incurred to see how the contractor is doing. Is it over, a contractor overrunning or underrunning? How are they doing? The contractors would say, we can't do that comparison because we're not reporting our costs as we incur them consistent with the way we grouped them in the bid. So we can't compare, except on a total contract basis, we can't tell you if we're overrunning or underrunning. You ask about the hull of a ship or the engine room or a particular thing, can't tell if we're doing better than we did or worse than we did. You know, any regulator, I think, would be frustrated by that. And so he kicked off, lobbied Congress to get Cost Accounting Standards Board, the CAS Board created, and then the CAS Board created these 19 standards. And the first of the 19 standards was this requires the consistency in estimating, accumulating, and reporting costs. And so it's 
consistency between the way you propose on a contract and then you later record your cost on the contract and you later bill on the contract, for example. All right, and I'm assuming that they cover things like consistency in allocating costs, accounting for unallowable costs, that type of thing as well. Yeah, and so I'll say that the distinction between FAR 31 and the CAS, you know, FAR 31 focuses primarily on the allowability of costs. Uh, you know, with the five criteria that we talked about, is it, it, it's kind of public policy. Is this, is this a cost that the federal government has said they will reimburse contractors? Is the cost allowable? Whereas the cost accounting standards is more on the measurement, assignment, and allocation of costs. It's mainly just uniformity and consistency. You know, it, it's like uh, whether a cost is allowable or unallowable, they want it to be uniformly and consistently accounted for. And then basically, Greg, how would a contractor that's perhaps moving from the private sector into doing government construction or government curement, how would they know whether they are subject to cast coverage? That's a great question. I get calls on that all the time. And it's you would know. The, the rules should be more straightforward than they are. They're just not. The questions that the contractor needs to ask, are they new contract trigger CAS coverage? And then if it does, is, does it trigger all 19 standards that's called full, full CAS coverage? Or does it trigger what's called modified CAS coverage, which is just four of the CAS? And then if it triggers modified or full, does it also trigger the requirement for a CAS disclosure statement? So those are all things that have, have to be evaluated. One of the triggering events for a cast covered contract is a $50 million award, but there are lots of exemptions to that. So if you got a $50 million sealed bid contract, it's exempt from cast covered. A $50 million commercial item contract, it's exempt. A $50 million fixed price contract with adequate price competition and, and some other criteria, also exempt. So there's these nine exemptions parsing through those exemptions to see if your particular contract is exempt is a, is a complicated thing that people need to do because it's a pretty important thing. And that's just based on the 50 million threshold. There's also, if you've got a seven and a half million dollar contract, but it's, but you've got some prior year cast covered contracts, it can cause you your new contract to be cast covered. And so you have to look at the other contracts in that business segment, figure out if the new contract is cast covered, which makes it complicated. Even the federal government can't tell if your new contract is going to be cast covered often because they don't know about the other contracts in your business segment. So it's a, it's a complicated mess. I'm sorry it's not more straightforward, but there are, you just need to dig through the FAR or this is not a commercial, not intended to be a commercial or call them to call me or somebody like us that can walk through the requirement. Yeah. I mean, the point is consistency in implementing that goal. It certainly does get very complicated. So let's also talk for a minute about pricing data, particularly as it relates to a contract and changes to a contract, because we were talking about CAS a minute ago and some of the exceptions, but even if we've got a lump sum firm fixed price sealed bid contract, but we have changes that arise later, do we need yeah. to consider truthful cost or pricing data, the, or what we may call TINA, when we talk about government construction contracts and changes? And that's something people often know they fall into the trap that seems like you're, you've seen as well. They say, well, we didn't... Uh, in the original contract award, it was lump sum. We didn't have to submit certified cost or pricing data. So why would we have to now that we've got a change order? 
And if the change order is under what's called the TINA threshold, the truthful cost of pricing data threshold, which is currently $2 million, if it's under that amount, you, you probably don't have to submit certified cost of pricing data. But if it's above that amount, you probably do. Then there's this closure statute, TINA, Truth and Negotiations Act, and then they change to a truthful cost of pricing data. And so lots and lots of data has to be disclosed to the federal government. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to price your mod, your claim or your REA or your contract mod in any particular way. But it does mean that you have to disclose a lot of information that may be useful to the government negotiator. The basic point is that there was considered to be this information asymmetry or you know, like the contractor having all this information and they're sitting across the table negotiating with the government and the government doesn't have the same information. And so the government's at a disadvantage. So the statute was put in place to, to give the government lots of data that they try to level the playing field, so to speak. Particularly on that contractor that's shifting over from doing private work to all of a sudden now they're negotiating with a contracting officer on a government contract. They're truly two different worlds and you need to be careful about your negotiations for changes over the $2 million threshold for sure. Right. I think the last thing I want to cover, Greg, is when we're talking about changes is change order accounting and maybe give us some best practices for linking additional costs to the basis of entitlement. I think we opened by saying you can have a great case on entitlement, but you need to make sure the damages are also well presented and, and certainly linked to the, to the injury. Yeah. And that causation where the costs are linked to the injury is certainly a difficult thing to establish. That's where a lot of claims fall apart, if you will. So the government likes to say that costs are not adequately documented, government auditors. So you submit a claim and they'll say, well, this cost is not documented. They'll assert, oh, you should have set up change order accounting. And that's basically set up separate job codes to record all of the changed work. And there are circumstances, rare circumstances, but circumstances where the contractor can actually do that. And when they can, they should. When can you do that? Well, let's say you're a very uh, different scope of work, a very segregable scope of work. So the people working on that scope are different than the other people on the contract. And so those people can just record their time to this other scope of work or materials, kind of the same thing. The materials are easily segregable. Generally speaking, that's not the case. There's, especially in the case of loss of productivity or disruption or delay related costs, it's really virtually impossible to segregate your costs using change order accounting. But that's something you contractors should try. I think the, the key is, as you point out, if you've got, for instance, direct cost changes on a construction project, for instance, maybe we're putting in additional two-inch conduit for electrical work. And it really gets tricky from a tracking standpoint, because remember, contractors are trying to build a project. They're not necessarily trying to build a file documenting everything they did. But if we've got, well well if we've got, a, got a contractor putting in two inches of conduit, and then the government says, well, we want to extend the conduit to run in this area of the building, and you got the same crews doing it, it really gets to be kind of a nightmare for the guys in the field in particular who aren't focused necessarily on paperwork, but it can sometimes be a necessary evil. That said, you mentioned like something like a measured mile. Uh, inefficiency claims are notoriously difficult to document and sometimes difficult to price, but what is a measured mile? How do you approach that? So in many cases, it relates to labor productivity. 
And it's uh, you look at the labor productivity anticipated in the bid, or, or just a data point, not not that you're going to necessarily use it in the in the claim. So the the labor productivity anticipated in the bid, the labor productivity before any in a smooth performance part of the contract, a part of the contract where you did not have the disruptions or inefficiencies caused by the government. And then you compare the productivity in that good portion of performance to the productivity in a disrupted time period. Once you get the delta or the difference between those two productivities, then you can multiply that by, by the labor hours and come up with a, a damage amount. And this is, I, I've given you the, the kind of the base case for the measured mile, the type of technique I just described you know, tweaks or, or modifications to that technique are used in lots of different ways in lots of different industries, in, in construction certainly, but outside of construction too. I think the DCAA's contract audit manual says something kind of positive about measured mile memory serves. And I'm not an attorney, but I've seen decisions at the ASPCA where they're kind of positive about the measured mile technique being an acceptable technique. Particularly in the ASPCA where you're sometimes distinguishing on mechanical claims between using a measured mile and something else like the MCA factors. It's sometimes a challenge to use the latter in the ASBCA, whereas a lot of times the boards will look very favorably on a measured mile. But that said, a measured mile requires good data. On a COVID-19 project, for instance, that was ongoing, and then it was hit with a COVID-19 impact, I think the contractor has a good opportunity particularly if there was similar work in the pre-impact period that compares very similarly with work in the post-impact period, the table's kind of set for the contractor to say, well, my productivity before the COVID-19 impact, where now I have to sanitize the work area or can't have as many people working efficiently and I've got to send them home or that type of thing, they can compare the pre-impact period to the post-impact period. And sometimes if they do it right, it's pretty compelling. Yeah, you have a great point there because this, sometimes there's a project that is disrupted from the beginning. Maybe there's a different site condition or there's some issue, so you don't have a clean period or a good productivity period. Where here, as you point out, there's, it's all over the news. You know when certain events happened that affected productivity. All right. So I think the moral of the story on change order accounting is although it's very important to have a good case on entitlement and it's very important to have a good compelling case on cost side the boards and courts do say that you don't have to prove damages with mathematical precision that said i think i'll close by saying the closer you can get to that mathematical precision the better off you're going to be in negotiating a modification with the government or prevailing in the one of the boards of the Court of Federal Claims. Greg, anything else? Yeah. It, well, yeah, no, that's a very good point. Let me add to that a little bit is that I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but like for a civil matter, the, the standard is preponderance of the evidence. You might get a better hearing from a judge than you get from the, a government auditor or a government contracting officer. In other words, the uh, oftentimes, an, a government auditor auditing a claim will just disallow costs because there's not the documentation that they think should be. There's, you know, a million dollars of material costs, and they can only document 950,000 of it. They may question all million that they think the material documentation is not adequate, you know, something extreme like that. 
And the contracting officer sometimes will follow the auditor's opinion there. And a judge, my impression, judges would not do that. They would go with the 950 or they would go with something much more reasonable than the government will. I hate to encourage litigation because it's so timely and it, it takes so long. But in this world, you'll get a better hearing from a judge than you will from a government auditor. And particularly in a board of contract appeals, I couldn't agree more. I think even though that sounds like the auditor may be implementing a knee-jerk reaction or being unreasonable, I think really some of them, they just want to be conservative and some have the view that they're protecting the public purse of the taxpayer. You hear that sometimes. I've heard that many times in depositions. It, when you get to the Board of Contract Appeals, there's really going to be a view towards, did the contractor actually do additional work and what is the reasonable cost of doing it? To the extent you can paint a picture that links the change and the actual cost incurred, I think you have a better chance of recovering more of those costs than if the board has to resort to something like a jury verdict. I think then the awards get reduced significantly, but, uh, but I think that's a great point. Thank you. Well, Greg, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure to talk with you about this very important subject on cost accounting and look forward to working with you on some more instructional information in the future. Yeah, Jim, I was happy to be here. It's a, a great podcast. I'm happy to be involved. Well, thank you both for joining us today. We appreciate both your insights. Again, uh, Jim Newland, a partner with Cypher Shaw, and Greg Bigham, a partner with HKA. Uh, Jim, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, thanks, Todd. So you can get a hold of me through email at J N E. W-L-A-N-D at S-E-Y-F-A-R-T-H dot com. That's J Newland at Seifarth.com. And my phone number is 202-828-3550. Thank you. And Greg, we have some of our listeners that want to get a hold of you. How would they do so? Yes, thanks. And so my email address is uh, Greg Bingham at HKA.com. So that's G R E G B I N G H A M at HKA.com. And I'm going to give you my cell number because that's the best way to reach me during this, you know, work stoppage and sure. social distancing, which is 703 609 8006. Fantastic. I just want to remind listeners that if you have topics you don't want us to cover in a podcast, please send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the FAR. Bye.